Welcome back to Pod Rocket. I'm Emily, producer for Pod Rocket, and we're back with the Launchpad, our monthly panel episode where we cover a wide range of topics trending in the world of web development, as well as going through some of our guests' hot takes about what they're fired up about in the world of web development right now. But before we get into it, let's introduce our panel. First, we have Lindsay Wardell. She is an engineer at No Red Inc. and speaks a lot about Elm in View. Welcome back, Lindsay. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Thanks for having me back. Great, of course. Next, we have Tejas Kumar. He's an international keynote speaker, YouTuber, angel investor, and advisor. We just had you on as well. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. And then finally, we have our Pod Rocket host, Paul Mikulskis, joining us to round out the panel. Hi, Paul. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right. Now that we're all here, we can get into the recent news. Let's start with topic number one. On February 1st, Netlify announced that it would be acquiring Gatsby, its main Jamstack competitor. Netlify CEO Matt Billman said in a press release, the future of the web is composable architectures. The acquisition of Gatsby not only accelerates our product roadmap, but more importantly, allows us to provide web developers with increased flexibility and choice in building composable web experiences. Billman cited Gatsby's recently released Valhalla platform as providing an area of composable architectures that we've had an eye on for a while. This contrasts with Netlify's pioneered Jamstack. So this acquisition leads me to two main points. One, is the future made of composable architectures? And two, what's the future of Jamstack? And before we answer those two questions, can someone define what composable architectures are and what Jamstack is? I'll jump in and say my understanding of the two. So for me, Jamstack is a website that is not necessarily running a independent siloed backend. You're going to be relying on services rather than having your own server that you're hosting in AWS or something like that. So when I'm building websites on Netlify, I'm relying on Netlify functions. I'm relying on Firebase. I'm relying on GraphQL access to databases or something along those lines, other services that I am not running myself. That is my understanding of the Jamstack. So things like Elevendy provide you a Jamstack site because it is a static site that then can have access to APIs in the background, whether those APIs are accessed on the client's browser or not. That's kind of my understanding of a Jamstack. Composable architecture to me is just an extension of that where it's easier to plug all of these things together. So using Elevendy as an example, if you have Elevendy and you have Contentful or some other backend for your CMS, those things play well together, but putting it into this term of composable architectures, I believe, is supposed to make it so all of these backend pieces fit together into a single service, or a graph is one of the other terms I've heard for this. And then Elevendy could just talk to that graph rather than talking to the independent services. I agree with that. And I also think like to extend this idea of composable architecture, because like when I think of composition, I think of components and composing them together. And when I hear composable architectures, I think of that because Gatsby, if I'm not mistaken, started a enterprise offering where you can deploy like functions and, and things like this. And this is growing a lot um, set in Netlify's press release, I think. And so composing the architecture of Gatsby's cloud offering with Netlify's cloud offering is also architectural composition as, as I understand. Do you feel like Jamstack is 
accelerating composable architectures because when you say composable architecture i'm thinking okay i can like do less i can focus on my little niche right here and i don't have to worry about these other systems do they go hand in hand in your mind tages yeah and no it's hard to say but i do think when you think jamstack you think more about composing because the a and jam is javascript apis and markup you tend to think in like fragmented apis and composition as opposed to like thinking about one monolithic service somewhere that my team maintains right so yeah, I, I do agree with you. I think it does lend itself to that. Another thing that's interesting on the composable architectures is that idea of graphs. So I know Netlify was working on Netlify Graph, which was recently kind of soft canceled. <laughs> I saw some speculation from Fred over at Astro that Netlify Graph was soft canceled because of this acquisition, or this is what's driving the acquisition of Gatsby. But there's also tools like StepZen that are really geared towards combining all of these different APIs, this fragmented ecosystem that we have right now in the Jamstack and bringing those into a centralized location, which I think is really interesting. I've been working on a personal site for a gaming club and I'm having to use Discord APIs, I'm having to use Firebase, I'm using a number of APIs and it'd be nice to just have a single interface to access them all. I was just gonna add on and say, Lindsay, you're totally say you're not off base with that one because the leader of Netlify said themselves that Gatsby had a sector of the market that they were eyeing for a while and they were already building in that direction and they were just like, oh, well, you know what? You guys really like took the torch on this one. So we're just going to acquire you. So your hunch sounds very accurate to what actually happened. <laughs> is Netlify Graph the evolution of what was once one graph? I believe it is. Yeah. Or was. I see. I didn't make that connection, but yeah, that sounds, I, I agree. Tejas, when you see the Netlify Graph coming out, and you're like, oh, yeah, I saw this in the past and I see it now and I agree that it's dying. Do you feel like this is offering a role for Gatsby to sort of like yeah. die itself or is it going to be its own? OK, you're shaking your head like, no, it's going to remain its own player. I doubt they'd make an acquisition for something to die. Right. I think one graph kind of did pioneer this, this composable architecture thing, because I still remember the demo before it was even acquired by Netlify. Its author composed GitHub and YouTube and Twitter APIs in one request. And I thought that was pretty rad. And I do remember Gatsby doing this. was the appeal of Gatsby as well. You build your static site at build time, fetching and fetching data from multiple different APIs via GraphQL, right? So the fact that both of them solve the problem leaves less room for Netlify Graph. That's what I mean when I say I agree for Netlify Graph. I think there is room for composable architectures. And I think Netlify is hoping that Gatsby fills that or the new acquired Gatsby fills that need right and expands Netlify's offering. The one fear, and you guys, please tell me that this is like unfounded. But when I'm thinking about developing with a composable architecture, my brain feels so good immediately because I'm like, oh, I don't have to worry about running this. I don't have to worry about running that. I can like just ping a GraphQL service. I can use Firebase auth. But at the same time, I almost feel like I'm removing my power as a developer because I'm giving a lot of these back end margins to big companies that are going to be filling that gap for me. I wonder if either of you have a thought on if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the developer community. For me, it's, it's helped me move faster. There's so many things I don't have to worry about. So it's a good question about dipping into margins to essentially pay for someone these problems to become someone else's problems. Right. But if it's a solved problem for me, yes. The only time I'll be suspicious is if it introduces lock-in. And if I, if I end up being like mm. handcuffed to a vendor, then, you know, I'd be suspicious. And I, I just actually spoke to a friend yesterday. They have a bunch of like Azure credits with their new startup. They're hesitant to build specifically on Azure functions 
because the code you write for Azure functions doesn't really translate to other functions providers. Um, so that's the boundary, I feel like, where I'd start to get uncomfortable with these people solving problems for me. I'm curious what Lindsay has to say about that. In general, I agree. I think it's something that needs to be watched to make sure that if you need to change what tools you're using in the back end, you're able to do some migration. You don't want to be locked in to any one particular thing. That said, at some point, you're probably going to make a decision and you're not going to change the back end. Had this discussion at work uh, talking about like onion architectures and, well, we need to design our database interface so that we can change from Postgres to something else. But odds are we're never actually going to do that. But at the same time, you don't want to get locked in early if you can avoid it. It's a hard protection to try to keep up for yourself, too, because I feel like a lot of services have a sneaky lock in that you have to be aware of. Like maybe it's not this service is a lock in service. I'm not saying you have to view a service holistically, but there are features and add ons you might become reliant on that quickly put you in that lock in scenario. Lindsay, in our podcast that we had a few weeks ago that was posted in January, I believe we were going and talking about functional programming a lot and you're the person I would talk to if I wanted advice on, you know, how can I continue to grow in that way of thinking about my code? So composable architectures, it is very functional in a way, in my brain at least, because I'm using these like composable, I use the word to define it, that's horrible. But you know, I'm using these little pieces and I'm thinking about them almost as hooks. And does this for you as my brain, being the composable person, move in a direction that feels more natural to you when you're putting out an application or scratching something up. Paul, I'm going to help you compose the composables into a composition. It'll be great. So from a functional programming perspective, this feels like side effects to some degree. That said, I think it's good. Interesting. Okay. And there is a place for side effects. Even in functional programming, there is a place for side effects. And having this reach outside of one thing to another, you're not 100% certain what's going to come back. And at the end of the day, when you're composing external services, whether you're using raw APIs and doing it yourself, or you're using a service that combines them for you, there's going to be some, maybe this isn't going to work and I'm going to get an error that's unexpected. So I would say yes with, with an asterisk. So it's like, yes, it does, but in like the way you wouldn't expect it to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, if you are making a web request, it could be a side effect. And that kind of brings me back to thinking about temporal. I don't know if you've ever messed with temporal IO, but they have this idea of like workflows and activities and workflows are anything that has a side effect cannot go in a workflow. And so as a result, you're not making web requests. You're not making DB calls in a workflow. And this kind of falls right in line with um, these guidelines that you just set forth for us. That's exactly how Elm and the Elm architecture works as well. There are are no side effects in the Elm programming language, you have managed effects. And a managed effect would be an HTTP request or sending a message to JavaScript or anything that is asynchronous really at the end of the day. So it feels more along those lines, but again, it's not a bad thing. It's used in the correct way in this case. And it makes it even better because in your code, you can just say, get me my data. And then the back end, it's getting all of the data from multiple sources. Like we were talking about Twitter, GitHub, Discord, anything could be stitched together in the back end. You don't need to think about it in your code. Yeah, I really like this analogy with side effects because when I'm working in a functional way and, and I have to deal with side effects, I think more carefully about them because I'm interfacing with some fork system. When we model like external architectures or composable architectures or hooks into that, I like that way of thinking because it enables like defensive programming. 
I'm curious about the distinction you mentioned, Lindsay, between managing effects and side effects, like definitionally. Like in the network request, sounds like a side effect. How are they connected? Are they connected? In actual use case, they're pretty similar. It's basically the same thing. The difference is a side effect to me, and I'm thinking about it from a Vue.js perspective. A side effect is if you're using a watcher and then you make a change to your data based on a trigger, where a managed effect is you're calling a function. That function returns the call for your HTTP request. It does the thing and returns the data. That would be a managed request as opposed to a side effect. Right, so the side effect is more like a subscription and the managed effect is more like a one-off operation. Yeah, you're, you're intentionally calling it saying, I want to make this HTTP request. I want to change this data. I want to do a thing. I want to send a message as opposed to this thing changed and now this other thing is happening over here. Is the crux of the definition intentionality? Yes. Okay, gotcha. When are you coming out with your book, Lindsay, on functional programming? Because I'll be the first person to buy it. I want it. Yeah. <laughs> I will let you know as soon as I start writing it. With the acquisition, what is your hot take on the increasing rate of big platforms acquiring open source software? Like, how do you see this evolving in the future? What does this kind of mean as we're going into, it seems like a new age of like big players in tech. I feel like there's a lot of bent up tension about some of the creators of open source frameworks and the behavior of the big companies and how they're being treated. I know Tejas, you're very much in this space being an angel investor and having your attention in all these different projects. Yeah, it's such a good question, Emily, because it's something that is to me bittersweet. Like it's nice to see companies stepping in and supporting open source. Like the fact that Zach gets to work on 11T full-time at Netlify, that's awesome. The fact that Rich gets to work at Svelte full-time open source at Marcel, that's great. But the bitter side of it to me is they have to work at Marcel to be funded as open source maintainers. And then that really bothers me because the whole world is built on open source, more or less, like at least in the web dev world. But it's so underfunded that maintainers have to take jobs. Because we, I'm talking about myself, I'm not just willing to like pay organically for like React or Spelt or whatever. That's how I feel about it. It's nice that companies are doing it, but I would prefer if just developers who depended on these things did it organically. Yeah, I feel like it's an unfortunate side effect of how the economy is set up, especially for software development. When you have somebody who is just open source and working on a thing, and I'm going to point at Evan Shaplicki, the creator of Elm, as my example right now. He works on that as a passion project. It was originally his thesis and it's grown from there. For a while, he was employed by No Red Ink just to work on Elm because No Red Ink was investing heavily in that technology. But at this point, again, he's just working on it because it's something he's interested in and he's passionate about. And that gets us really far in software development, especially web development. But at some point, you need to be able to pay rent. You need to be able to pay a mortgage. You need to be able to pay for food. And having the dream of being, I'm just an open source creator is harder. So we've seen a couple different solutions, you know, Facebook and Google created their own frameworks. Companies like Gatsby were founded on the premise of we created this open source thing and now we need to make money and provide better support and benefits to paying customers. And then we have companies like Netlify and Vercel that are creating their own platforms and then acquiring to support the open source. So I think we've seen these three different models. I don't know that we've found the best one yet. I don't feel bad about the recent acquisitions like Shopify buying Remix or Netlify acquiring Gatsby. 
because it means that these tools that are open source can remain open source and the entire software development ecosystem benefits from that. The great thing is, I feel like Netlify and Marcel heavily depend on these things. That's why they buy them and pay them. I'm aware of one other way that open source can be supported that is not very well known. And this is something I'm excited about. Have you all heard of thanks.dev? I have not. It's this small startup by a friend of mine. Nothing big. But what they do is they'll scan your like dependency graph and show you like who you depend on and allow you to like literally you just like I'll give thanks.dev a hundred dollars and it will like distribute by weight according to your dependency graph of open source maintainers, whatever amount you pledge automatically monthly, just based on what you depend on. So I think that's pretty cool. I've seen a few maintainers get paid by that. I really like that. That's cool. Next, I want to talk about Create React app and the recommendation of replacing it with Vite. So we can get through our panel without a little React drama, obviously. A couple of weeks ago, Theo Brown posted a pull request on the React GitHub recommending replacing CRA with Vite. His reasoning behind this was seeing that new devs were running into an unnecessary issues due to the continued recommendation of CRA. Dev Twitter resoundingly agreed, and some mentioned that CRA's inability to support post-CSS configurations and were recommending either V, Parcel, Next, or Remix. Two weeks later, Dan Abramov responded in the most Dan way, giving complete context as to why CRA exists, the current problems with CRA, including its stagnation, and how React works as an architecture and how it produces frameworks. He gave a bunch of options, which we're going to link to in the show notes. Um, and currently, the React team is leaning towards going towards turning Create React app into a launcher. So before we get into questions, can someone summarize what CRA is and what it does and why it benefits developers? So when I started with React, and when most of us started with React, it was complicated to set up because it was a whole different programming language. It wasn't JavaScript. It was JSX which at the time was like, what, what is this? So we needed code. We needed software to translate that into JavaScript that browsers could understand. And so we'd have to set up like Webpack and all kinds of extensions and just configuration on configuration on configuration. And so Dan created Create React App to do all of that for us and just give us a React App like that. Since then, tooling has come a really long way, but Create React App hasn't followed as well. And that's the case Theo made in the pull request. And to some degree, I agree. But that's the gist of it. That's create React app and up to where it is today. I mean, now, honestly, I don't even use it. I just make a Next.js app. That's just me. I'm curious if y'all do the same or if you if you all start with V. Or... Yeah, I do. So, Pages, you said like you don't even use it anymore. How about Lindsay or Paul for like newer devs, Theo was saying, it's like very hard to use. Would you consider using V? Otherwise, would you rather Next.js? Like, what do you think is the best way forward? Or do you think that they can create create React app as something better? I'd love to hop in on this one just because I feel like Lindsay is front end professional of like leaps and bounds beyond myself. Like I'm a jack of all trades. I like to do back end and front end stuff. And so from my perspective, I just use whatever has the most stack overflow posts about it that are recent. Because Next.js had such a pull in the field in the past year, two years, as Tay just mentioned, like I just always turn back to the Next.js to create my application. And I don't know when I'm going to change until I change to like Astro or L. Hello, my name is Dev Twitter, and I resoundingly agree with Veet. <laughs> I, I have not used Create React app myself in years. I typically don't write React also, just to be honest and upfront. But when I was doing React, the way I looked at it is if I need a single page application, 
I'm going to use create react app. If I need something that's going to need a database or need server side, anything, I'm going to reach for something else probably next. And that really hasn't changed for me. If I'm building a simple single page application, I'm either going to reach for now, I'm going to reach for the, the Vite template for react, or I'm going to reach for something like Astro or like 11D or something like that and inject react into that. Both of which are using Vite, if I remember correctly. I don't remember if 11D is actually using Vite yet, but Astro is. And so for me, if I'm approaching it from a teaching perspective of I want to help new developers get into React as quickly as possible and write a component that works, I'm not going to teach them next. I'm going to spin up a basic template. Probably it's going to be the Vite template because it provides the hot module reload. It provides really nice configuration if you need to expand things. And if you want to be more advanced, you can set up your own server-side rendering using V, and there are templates to do that for you. My personal opinion would be just replace it. It should be more of a nuanced discussion about what is the value of Create React App. But my feeling is it's especially useful for simple single-page applications and new developers. Both of those would be served perfectly fine by a Vite-based template. I'll also add on that I think Eleventy uh, does fully integrate with the Vite now. You just need to do it through a plugin, yeah, if not natively. I was going to say, I, I think it's also worth noting that as a teaching tool, it's great because you get to teach new developers the value of server-side rendering. Like you said, Lindsay, like I would start with Vite and then come to the point of like, oh, wait, we need to think about SEO and we need HTML markup like in the browser. How do we do that? And then we pivot to server rendering. And then we maybe talk about static rendering, all of which can be done with Vite. And then we go to next when the students, as it were, understand why. That's exactly why I'd also use Vite. I would have loved to step into web development through that path pages. That would like have removed a lot of frustration through the self-learning process. What is SSR and, and client-side rendering? Oh my gosh. What pain did you endure when you, what path did you step on? I stepped into being a, like a dumbed down Gatsby developer where I just followed things the way they did it, you know, very simple, fast render times. Everything worked beautifully because there was uncomplicated websites. And then you're like, okay, I want to make something real. I want to do databases. Next.js, like I said, Stack Overflow, it's everywhere. That's what I'm going to use. And you quickly get thrown into this world of what is SSR. And you don't understand the point unless you come from that like first basic point. And if you start with Vite, I'm sure I, I would have had like a much clearer vision of why something was server-side props versus not. I'm in a bubble of people who do server-side <laughs> by default. <laughs> Thinking of kind of what Dan said about how React is an architecture and it produces frameworks and that I'm seeing, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, I know everyone's like, is React dead? Like every single year, they're like, React's dead. But do you think, especially with this, do you feel like React is becoming more of a base for everything and then the frameworks are going to keep iterating on it and surpass React? Do you see it kind of becoming like, JavaScript, where it's a very like essential thing, and then everyone else will build on top of that. Yeah, I think React's not going away. I think it's too late for React to go away because there's even now, like React is no longer a meta thing. It's maintained by Vercel. And also it's got to adopt, like the Chrome team works with them on making React better for the web. It's this fundamental part now. So I don't think it's going to go away. It's at the stage of like JavaScript junior. So to say React is going away is to say like JavaScript is going away, which no, I don't think so. But React is severely limited. I don't know if you all know this good friend of mine. His name's Yanni. Uh, I can't say his last name because it's uh, 
it's Finnish and hard to pronounce. Yani Evakalio or something like this. He said React is fast approaching its middle age where it has like a dad bod and it's like mature and stuff like this. So it's not going to go away, but it is very mature. And I agree. And that's because I'm looking at tools like Quick. I don't know if y'all have heard of Quick and SolidJS, which they're, they're faster than React, like measurably faster every single time. And in that way, better than React. But I don't think they can like dethrone or displace React because one, they're new and not as mature. And two, React has a head start and React has years and years of iteration that these things don't yet have. And when they do have it, React will have even more. So like, I don't know that React will go away anytime. Quick point. We actually had an episode with the creator of Quick. It was a fun episode. And he himself was saying that there are things that like, you're always just still going to turn to React to do like Quick is amazing for what it was built for. Exactly. That's about as far as it goes. I also don't think React is going anywhere, but I would throw out the hot take that React is the new jQuery. Ooh. It's not going to be cool <laughs> in the coming years, is my feeling. Because we have things like Quick, because we have things like Solid, because SvelteKit is doing what it's doing. There's going to be new frameworks. There's going to be new ideas on how to build web applications. At some point, React is going to be that thing, and Next is going to be that thing, and everyone's like, oh, I remember when I worked on Next 10 years ago. I can't believe we did that. Just like we do today with WordPress and jQuery. It's going to get there, and it's definitely not going away. But honestly, what frameworks do go away? There are still websites out there using AngularJS. There are still websites using Knockout, Backbone. You know, All of the technology doesn't go anywhere, and that's another nice benefit of open source. It just pivots into being less cool and talked about. Moving on. So in January, Astro 2 released to bring in a slew of new features, including the content collections API to deal with markdown more easily, hybrid rendering, easier debugging, and more. What is Astro and what does it provide its users? I'm so glad you asked because I'm, I'm just going to be full disclosure here. I'm a complete and utter noob about Astro 2. I know absolutely nothing about it. Not here to learn. Astro was originally created as a static site generator that was framework agnostic. The goal was you could write components in Astro, like .astro file. The structure kind of resembles JSX, but it's not. You've got like a front matter section where you write your JavaScript to do your imports, exports, data manipulation, and then you write a template, but the template can include JavaScript, but it's not JSX. It's, it's interesting, but you don't have to use it. You can just use a, an integration with something like Vue or React or Svelte or Solid or whatever. You can use any component that you want. You can just use the framework of your choice, but render it statically, and then you get the benefits of Astro on top of that. So that was the original pitch of Astro. And from there, it's grown into server-side rendering. There's an integration with Netlify so that you can do server-side rendering on Netlify functions. And you don't even have to think about it. You just install the integration and the site does everything on the server for you that you need it to. In many ways, it feels like the PHP version of JavaScript where you can just write code and it runs on the server and life is good. That's my high-level take of Astro. Using it for my personal site, I use it for other smaller sites. It's, it's my go-to at this point if I need something static or not running on a server specifically. Would you say Astro allows me to like compose different UI libraries together as, as I need? Yes. If you want to have React, Vue, and Svelte all on the same page, you can do that easily. 
So this question about React going away and Quick being like the cool new kid, I could literally use React and Quick both in my Astro site and then maybe phase out React one day if I want to or phase out Quick or it gives me that flexibility. Absolutely, yes. And then on top of that, you can tell if it, you want it to render default like Lindsay was saying on the server and now we could do it on the, the client side as well. You, you can be very pedantic about that and that's a new thing. That's so awesome. <laughs> so Tejas is obviously very excited about Astro, but I want to ask Lindsay and Paul, what are your first impressions? The cheating. <laughs> the cheating a little bit. Just because like, I I feel like with Next.js, I've put in a lot of effort where it's like, I'm going to have this be plain old HTML and CSS and that's the vibe. Or I'm going all out and doing a theme and, and everything. And I have to think about my server side and my client side. With Astro, I love the content collections and the markdown and it's all typed. That felt like cheating. For me, it's less about the hybrid rendering, more about the content collections when I was trying to make a personal site. That felt like cheating. Oh, sorry, I don't know what that is. What's, what's content collections? Why is it better than hybrid rendering? I'd love to get into content collections a little bit, even though we're on the hybrid rendering topic, but content collections allows you to have these MDX files or essentially fancy markdown files and you can type things. I can say like, this is an author. This is like a contributor to my repository. And when I want to reference your name, Tejas, I'm never going to misspell it because I'm going to refer to you as sort of like an object, a typed object in my markdown. And it really provides like dynamic breathing documents on your website that can be statically rendered and cached as needed. That is so awesome. That, well, man, I need to play with Astro. That's what I'm getting from this. <laughs> yeah. Astro is so fun to play with too, because of how it works. It's not even just MDX files. You can do MD files too. And all of your front matter is strongly typed, well, as strongly typed as TypeScript allows. And it's auto-generating the types for you so you don't have to think about it. And then when you perform the import to get your file, you can just see all of the keys that are available. You can render the markdown into an Astro component and then just inject that into your page as HTML. I'm a big fan of that. The hybrid rendering is also very fun. I haven't found a personal use case for that yet because my sites are small and don't need it. But having that flexibility is so wonderful. It's one of the nice things that Next.js has had too. And getting that into Astro is really nice. I'm going to throw out a hot take, and I don't mean to derail us, but my personal opinion is that Astro is on the same trajectory as Remix as far as what it's trying to do and what kind of solutions it offers. The difference being you're not locked into React and you're not locked in to a specific configuration because it provides you access to the Vite config. I love that. So you can do what you want. You can extend it the way you want. And you can build the site that you want. I totally agree with you, Lindsay, on, on your hot take, because I had that same feeling after having worked on my first Remix app earlier in the year. I was like, I'm building the same mental model in my head and I'm making the same decisions that Remix is sort of offering me. But yeah, I'm not locked in. I can do whatever I want. Well, would y'all say from a business perspective, like if there's a company with a big web project, would y'all say it's wise for them to invest in Astro and choose Astro to build their app because then they can hire from like more diverse developer communities like Svelte and React? I feel like I can't answer that question because I haven't led a huge dev team myself. But my initial reaction would be like there is inherent value in having some homogeneous framework that you're working off of together. If everything's disparate, that's confusion. But then at the same time, yeah, you could hire more people. I don't know. I'm curious what you think, Lindsay. My instinct is if you are already looking at building something using a Jamstack structure, then Astro should be in the top three of what you're considering. 
because it gives you access to server-side rendering. It gives you access to APIs and integrations with the different frameworks. You can build a marketing site. You can build a shopping site. You can integrate with the things that you need to build the kind of business website that you want. So if you're already looking at that kind of architecture, I would definitely recommend looking at Astro. What's the other two on the top over here? I don't know. I just wanted to give room for something else. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Love that. Any other thoughts about Astro 2, hybrid rendering, the whole TypeScript for Markdown before we get on to our hot takes? I just feel like a massive noob because, Paul, you built something in Remix and Astro, and Lindsay, you built things with Astro, and here I am just like with Next.js all day, every day. You all have motivated me so much to diversify the tools, so thank you all. My big final point would be, as somebody who works with strongly typed languages like Elm and Haskell, I really appreciate how much more TypeScript has been adopted by the JavaScript ecosystem. JavaScript is a dynamic language, and TypeScript has to provide holes for it. And I understand that. So it's not perfect. TypeScript can lie. You can make TypeScript lie. You can lie to TypeScript. But it's still better than it could be. And you don't have to maintain the whole model of your application in your head. So extending that into Markdown and having it generate automatically for you is really nice. So I'm just really happy with the direction they're going with typing Markdown and pushing that as one of the big features of Astro 2. Not just having it as a feature, but it is one of the features. I totally agree with that. And if you're stepping into Astro Tages for the first time or anybody listening, like I feel like the strongly typed content collections and MDX markdown files, that might be the first thing that really you go, wow, when you look at Astro, because hybrid rendering, how many scenarios in a small personal site might you actually need to make those types of decisions? Not many, but something like having the content collections really could be pervasive in a lot of sites and very clearly add value in a way that you might not have seen earlier. I'm actually just going to circle back real quick because I know what I would have said if I was listening to this podcast, if it wasn't mentioned. Coming back to the beginning of our conversation with Gatsby, that was one of the things I really liked about Gatsby with the GraphQL API is that all of the data you're pulling in was strongly typed. And while GraphQL, it's debatable whether that was a good interface for a static site. I appreciated it, but I know people didn't. And having it in a simpler interface of just being able to import the file and get all of that typing is so wonderful. You don't have to worry about the complexity of GraphQL or any of those other more advanced technologies. You can just do an import like you normally would and you have your data. Before we move on to our final portion of the panel, I would love to ask you to follow us on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying this episode. It's tremendously helpful. We can use that data to help tailor content to fit what you want to listen to, as well as experiment with new types of content like we are with this panel today. So follow us on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating if you really love us, and on to our hot takes. All right. That was great, guys. And I want to get into our hot takes. This is the part of the panel where everyone gets two minutes to talk about whatever they like. Tejas, you're up first. I'll let you know when the clock starts and when you have 10 seconds left. Are you ready? All right. Ready, set, go. Okay, so my hot take is that developer relations is so easily abused and misunderstood. Like it will often over indent for one thing or the other, either content creation, public speaking hype, without fully understanding relationships. My understanding is the hot takes are about anything in the dev world. 
this is the thing in the dev like developer relations is newer and, and up and coming. And because of that, it's very easy to like abuse. So I've seen a bunch of abuse happen in DevRel and I hate it. That's my hot take. DevRel can be beautiful when done right, but it is often done wrong. That's the hot take. And it's done wrong. And what I've seen is in it, like relatively inexperienced people being hired because again, it's a young field. And then, you know, having to deliver unrealistic things to the point where they burn out and, and so on. Because companies try to measure DevRel in ways that I believe ought not be measured. Like how many email addresses did you get at this conference? No, um, it's it's about relationships, not numbers. Or a lot of DevRel work being public talks that are just marketing, what is marketing pitches for things? No, it's in the name, DevRel, developer relations it's devrel and not dev cell like a lot of companies have come to me like when i was doing devrel work and like hey how do we get our sales number up should we do some devrel work and i'm like no hire a sales team if you want good relationships with developers if you want to teach people how to use your thing not necessarily for your profit but also for their good then devrel makes sense hot take about devrel also docs we're not solely a DevRel thing. Um, I believe engineers are responsible for documentation. Um, it's not like write the, write the code, give it to the community and good luck or give it to the DevRel people and good luck writing the docs. But the engineers as closest to the code ought to write the docs and DevRel can help refine. I've said a lot, but I have tons of thoughts about DevRel and I'm also thinking about starting a company in this space. And so I, yes, I care a lot about this and, and my hot takes basically that. Uh, that was great. Lindsay, do you want to go next? Sure. All right, and go. So one of the main conversations that happens on Twitter all the time is, is Tailwind good or is Tailwind evil? And as somebody who has been using Tailwind prior to 1.0 and been very happy with it, it's just a tool. It doesn't, it's not good, it's not evil. It's a tool and people are able to use it to build websites and that's great. Um, the, the main thing that I see people talking about is how could you want to do this if you actually know how CSS works? I learned CSS in the early 2000s. I know how CSS works. I really like Tailwind because I don't have to write all of that stuff. I don't have to worry about it. I can just use a tool. And then if I need to customize it, this is the best part. I can. I can customize Tailwind because it offers that flexibility. When I first was getting it, re reacquainting myself with development and I got into Bootstrap, I was like, okay, I've got Bootstrap. This is cool. How do I change it? How do I make it mine? And you really can't easily. You have to understand Bootstrap, not just CSS in order to change a Bootstrap uh, template. But if you just know CSS and you're able to use Tailwind, then you're good to go. But again, the main point is it doesn't really matter. What matters is use the tools that are best for you and use the tools that are best for your team. At work, I'm using Elm CSS. People at other jobs use CSS and JS. They use SAS. They use post CSS. They use whatever they use because that is the tool that lets them build good looking websites. And that's really what matters at the end of the day. So I really wish as a dev community, we can just stop talking about how terrible templates look when they're using Tailwind. When I was first getting into web development, I would judge any website that had generated HTML because it didn't indent properly, but that's not a thing anymore. We're all using generated code. So just chill and let people build websites. We enjoy it and we have fun. Amazing, love that. Paul, you're the last one up. All right, all right, go. <laughs> all right, so my hot take is that web development and front-end development is just as much back-end development as it is front-end development. And I think, 
My question earlier about like, are we moving away from having knowledge about how to run these systems and vendor locking and all that? Like this touches upon that where you as a web developer, if you want to post a website, even a simple website, it's not out of the question. It's not really hard. It's not rocket science to go run your own server. And there's really great frameworks and technologies such as temporal, such as flight control. We, we, we also did a podcast here on flight control. Like how can you in a more simple, easy mental model, take control of your own infrastructure and really make these decisions for yourself? And the margin savings I think are way more profound than a lot of companies or developer groups might initially recognize the sale pitch of you don't need to spend people and time to do it because AWS is running my server and it's always going to be up is becoming a little bit harder and harder to sell. I think as these great technologies are rolling out over the years. Awesome. Under time. I just want to thank all of you for coming on today and joining the panel. So happy for you all to come back. If you liked this podcast, definitely follow us. Tell us what you want to hear more about. And uh, we'll be back with another panel next month. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. It was a, it was a great time.